So we call this um, Impartu Kinesthetic Sensing Technology because um, we are, so to say, looking into uh, a human uh, with these um, sensing technologies and um, derive information about their kinesthetic sensing, so, so body pose and uh, also the facial expression uh, to understand better what the health status of an individual is, for example, with respect to uh, Parkinson's disease or with respect to depression, um, to say something about our mental health. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Make IoT Work podcast. My name is Thomas Reinhardt, I'm your host and I'm really excited having this great opportunity to share this podcast with all of you. There has been a lot of discussion about the importance of good health and well-being, especially as the world population rises and at the same time life expectancy is increasing. The fast-growing cost of acute care are pushing the healthcare systems worldwide to a limit. So healthcare increasingly places great emphasis on enhancing well-being to prevent illness rather than sporadically treating acute illnesses. The IoT has great potential to support good health and well-being with smart electronic devices either worn on the body or even installed at home. It is possible to measure people's fitness and health status. Data mining, algorithms, machine learning, and artificial intelligence play a central role in future developments in the healthcare sector. So these topics have received a lot of attention in medical research recently. This is what I want to talk about with my guest today. Professor Björn Escoffier is heading the machine learning and data analytics lab at the FAU. Currently, this lab has about 50 co-workers in the field of machine learning and signal analysis for variable computer systems with a focus on sports and healthcare. Professor, thank you very much for being our guest today. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, as said in the introduction, the healthcare system is facing major challenges. As consumers, we are being urged to take greater responsibility for our very own health. Healthcare is self-care, so to speak. But what other developments can we observe in the digital healthcare system? Yeah, thank you very much for um, the question. Um, there's a lot of things that are currently being done in digital healthcare, and it's really exciting to be part of this journey uh, internationally. So I think there's uh, three major developments that we currently see. There is um, an increasing use of digital uh, apps and um, smartphone variables that are used to collect data. There is also um, better ways and uh, research on how to extract and use health data because you have data in various silos that are not necessarily connected. And then uh, thirdly, and that's of course um, the area in which most of my lab's work is being done, um, you have artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that make use of the data. So the combination of collecting data, um, linking data, and then using data with artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's, I think, the, the three important and uh, interesting directions that we currently see in digital healthcare. Mm. That's a very good point. So, so meaning the extraction, the use and interpretation uh, is, of, is a top priority. What developments can we observe here in the area of the research? Well, there are so many things that uh, we could talk about, so um, I will probably just uh, uh, touch base 
on the main research topics that we currently do in uh, my lab at uh, Friedrich Alexander University in Erlangen-Nürnberg. But um, internationally, you could, of course, um, name a lot of uh, developments. So, for example, internationally and um, um, beyond uh, what my lab is doing, there is automatic interpretation of uh, medical images as uh, one of the interesting areas. There is um, um, genome and uh, proteome and, in general, omics information that is used off of humans uh, to interpret uh, their future health states. And there's all kinds of prediction algorithms for different diseases in neurology, in oncology, in um, urology and whatnot um, that are used to yeah, predict um, future health events and um, um, the top uh, interventions that you could do with uh, a certain patient. Mm -hmm. But um, in our own line of research, we're doing things that are centered on uh, taking human biosignals. So these might uh, emerge from digital health devices. So for example, um, variables that are worn on body, but also cameras and um, night vision cameras and uh, other ambient um, sensing devices that give us uh, information about the status of the human body in various dimensions, like for example, um, regarding heartbeat information, electrocardiogram information, breathing information, and um, other similar things. And um, we're making use of these data. So these are subsequently analyzed, but I think we'll come to that um, also later. But we're also developing novel sensing concepts. So not only the traditional sensing concepts that I've touched base on so far, so using inertial measurement unit systems and electrodes to measure biosignals and cameras, RGB video cameras um, to uh, collect information about uh, humans and possibly their health status. But we're also developing, as I said, novel sensing concepts. And these are, I think, uh, very exciting. So I'm part of a Sonderforschungsbereich in German or Collaborative Research Center in English. So that's a 35 million 12 year endeavor um, um, financed by the German Research Foundation, where I, together with um, other researchers, so about um, 20 PIs, principal investigators, are researching into how to use radar and other RF wave-based detection systems to generate also information about the health status of the human. So we call this um, Empato Kinesthetic Sensing Technology because um, we are, so to say, looking into uh, a human uh, with these um, sensing technologies and um, derive information about their kinesthetic sensing, so body pose, and uh, also the facial expression uh, to understand better what the health status of an individual is, for example, with respect to uh, Parkinson's disease or with respect to depression, um, to say something about uh, mental health. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and, and already get a feeling that you have a wide variety of projects and topics you are covering. And you also talked about um, collaboration. So that's that's the point where I would like to better understand how in those kind of projects that the collaboration between research, an academic institute, so to say, on the one hand, and businesses on the other hand, uh, can can work um, together. What is what is important for the success of such a large research project? Yeah, I think that uh, only teams um, of uh, multiple disciplines can solve the complicated challenges in healthcare. I mean, a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast will probably know something about um, how complicated also the digitalization 
in healthcare is and um, how many challenges we face. So I think that only teams of engineers, medical experts, industry representatives and entrepreneurs can really implement changes in digital healthcare. In concrete measures, uh, that means that my team, and uh, you've already said that um, I have about 50 researchers in my lab um, that, so to say, directly uh, are uh, supervised uh, by myself and by my team of postdoctoral and um, assistant professors. Um, so those people uh, get uh, very often the push from my side to also uh, spend time with their collaboration partners. So that means that if I supervise a machine learning engineer that um, comes up with novel interpretation algorithms for biosignals that are collected in a certain disease area, like, for example, Parkinson's disease, then I challenge these people to spend time, for example, with the medical experts. Um, so they need to be also in the university hospital, spend time um, with their medical counterparts, um, but also with patients to understand their needs and to also understand um, where technology is really um, most helping uh, with uh, the digital tools, the patients of, um, of, of, yeah, of our age. So it's not only about coming up with, with a solution, but it's also um, about coming up with a solution that actually helps the patient and the medical expert in um, daily routine. And then, of course, you're an industry representative that I'm talking to. <laughs> So um, this is also a very important piece of the puzzle. So we work a lot with industry, um, both small, medium enterprises, um, large industry, uh, as well as startups. So um, my lab has also co-founded um, a couple of um, startups that actually bring this technology to the market. Because very often you see great, fantastic research results that work very well in, um, you know, lab collected um, data sets. But then if you want to bring them into real clinical care, um, mm -hmm. especially in the world of medicine, they fail because they have been trained as a machine learning algorithm with certain data um, in the lab and then uh, in the wild, as we call it. So in the real world, they often see things uh, that they have not been yeah, well prepared for. And therefore, the um, solutions that work super well in research um, and in the lab don't work in the real life. So working with mm -hmm. industry, working with startups is, uh, for me, such an important piece of our work because that really ensures that we not only research for the purpose of uh, doing something interesting in science, but that we actually are also changing the lives of patients and um, medical experts alike. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. And, and maybe you have one or two concrete examples where you can illustrate, so to say, what comes out of such a research project? Yeah, sure. So I think two things that um, the lab is currently still doing and which I find personally also super interesting for, for various reasons is our work in uh, neurology and in um, women's health. So in Neurology, my lab is contributing for the last 15 years to um, automated uh, analysis of uh, symptoms and um, symptom changes in chronic diseases, chronic neurologic diseases, like, for example, Parkinson's, which I, I used as an example uh, a couple of times so far. I have a personal story with Parkinson's. So my um, uncle unfortunately died from the disease a couple of years ago and um, from, well, my time as an as an uh, as a young adult 
I remember um, him suffering from uh, the disease and from the symptoms mm -hmm. that he was experiencing. So uh, it was personally also motivating for me as a researcher to contribute to this area. And um, you really start small. You start with um, simple uh, sensors that you um, use uh, together with uh, medical experts in real patient cohorts. And then you make a lot of mistakes. Uh, you do a lot of things that are okay in science and research. Um, you test things and uh, certain things, certain sensing concepts, certain algorithmic concepts um, don't work, but some do work. And so um, over the years, we have uh, developed one of the, I think, um, worldwide largest databases in um, um, Parkinson's disease symptom tracking. So together with our university hospital and with many national and international partners, uh, we are quite proud to have, um, as I said, one of the largest or probably the largest database regarding um, um, movement uh, recording in Parkinson's disease. And with this database, which is, of course, an important prerequisite for any AI and machine learning, uh, probably most of the listeners of this um, podcast um, know that any machine learning system can only be as good as the data that you use uh, to train it. Um, you can now in 2023, so after 15 years of research and after collecting a lot of data, um, um, detect and um, also predict um, the health status of a Parkinson patient quite well. And we have transferred this knowledge into um, a startup. So uh, the startup is currently just at the uh, brink of hopefully becoming um, um, marketable um, or getting a marketable product um, onto the at least German healthcare market. So we are in the process of getting a DIGA registered. Um, I think this is quite specific, but um, also very interesting. So um, um, listeners that are not uh, familiar with this concept might look into that. It's called the Digitale Gesundheitsapplikation DIGA. And the interesting thing is that currently only Germany has it. Um, it created a lot of buzz on the um, German um, healthcare startup market because if you have a registered DIGA, a medical um, expert can prescribe your app on recipe, meaning that you mm -hmm. get um, quite directly into reimbursement. And um, that's, uh, of course, for a startup that um, doesn't have the time to wait for years um, until until you have um, proven that your system works, um, a quite attractive business concept. So here, um, I'm really happy that um, my lab and myself contributed to um, hopefully a system that can help uh, patients in Parkinson's disease in their um, um, daily um, symptom detection, and then also in supporting the treatment of uh, a patient, him or herself. And it was quite an interesting journey to yeah, follow that along over the last um, 15 years. Now, I was touching base on uh, neurology and one uh, specific example, Parkinson's disease. But I've also mentioned um, women's health. So in women's health, we are currently um, also involved in two large projects. And also these projects, so both um, Parkinson's disease, neurology, as well as women's health, only work in this, um, in, in this collaboration that I've mentioned. So there's, of course, medical experts involved. There is national and international partners involved that I um, can't all mention here. But in women's health, we are, we are part of, so my lab and myself, we are part of um, two large projects. Um, one is um, funded by the German Ministry of Healthcare. And this is centered on um, digital support um, of uh, pregnant women. 
So to make the complete care of a person that is uh, pregnant, of course, a woman that is pregnant, um, supported by digital tools. So something that you can concretely do here is, for example, um, bringing the tracker that uh, detects the fetal ECG, so the um, heart function uh, of the unborn baby, um, to a mother's home. So instead of going to the doctor, to the medical expert, and having your fetal ECG measured there, you can already do this at home. And this is um, things uh, that we uh, do research on to bring a digital care concept um, for pregnant women uh, yeah, to Germany. And this is, of course, still research, but um, we are really hoping that in a couple of years, uh, the first startups are using uh, these kind of uh, ideas and uh, make products out of it and then also yeah, improve and um, digitize the process of uh, digital care in pregnancy. Thank you very much for the, for the two really lively examples that was, was very interesting. Um, but you also mentioned one point um, that comes to my mind. You said, of course, with regard to machine learning, the, the data that is generated, processed and stored, I have to ask, what about the protection of this very sensitive data as it is fitness and personal health data? Yeah, that is, of course, a super important um, point. And uh, especially living in Europe uh, with the values that we have in the European Union, this is something that um, is dead center in um, all our uh, improvements and all our research. But I'm really happy that the European Union has um, also these values put forward in a lot of its legislation. So interestingly, I was um, a visiting researcher at MIT, uh, so Massachusetts Institute of Technology in uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, in 2018, when GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations mm -hmm. of the European Union, uh, uh, well, were put into practice. And um, the European Union uh, was a little bit like, uh, yeah, well, seen as, okay, why are they doing all these regulations from the outside? Um, the host that I had at uh, MIT was actually saying that this is a great thing because it defines uh, who data really belongs to. And that's the individual person. That's, of course, a very simple thought, but the European Union put this into a law. And that defines also who um, can control uh, data. And um, this is, of course, now uh, something that, that we see uh, very often in having to consent to cookies whenever we uh, browse the internet. So uh, mm -hmm. rather something annoying, but in its core principle, it's a good idea. And now the question is how we transport this to healthcare, because in healthcare, I mean, if you just imagine your own situation, you probably um, had some medical diagnostics in the past. So, for example, you went to the university hospital to get a medical image, and then subsequently you go to your uh, general practitioner to get information about what came out of this medical picture. And the intervention that you get is, of course, based on, on this yeah, medical information that you have. So now the challenge is, of course, how to transport this into healthcare, because um, you might uh, know from your own practice that uh, the last time you got uh, a medical image, for example, in a university hospital, um, the image is then in the university hospital. And subsequently, you go to a general practitioner to get information about what came out of this um, um, image that was taken off of you. But you never have 
the medical image yourself. Now, you might not be interested in that, but we as researchers are very much interested in all these data. So if I want to build a great machine learning system, I want to have data from thousands of patients. And that was exactly the um, argument that I made. So in our Parkinson's disease research and our neurology research, we had to collect data over 15 years. And that's, of course, um, yeah, also a challenge to innovation, because if I have a certain question that I would like to answer with uh, large amounts of data, I always have to or very often have to collect these data prospectively for a certain study purpose. But these data are mostly all available, but they are in their silos. So the data are with the university hospitals, with the general practitioners, a little bit with ourselves and all those um, smart variables that we are um, carrying around. Um, but uh, nevertheless, the data are dispersed in silos. I'm very motivated that I'm part of another endeavor by the uh, European Union uh, that currently designs the so-called European Health Data Space, or in short, EHDS. So the EHDS is another legislation like the GDPR that defines that all um, medical data should reside with the patient, him or herself, and um, so that the patient can um, um, control those data. So, for example, a patient of the future, once this um, is put into practice, can give, donate the last medical image to research because this is GDPR compliant and it also works in this um, um, European health data space ecosystem. And now, importantly, because you asked for it, um, this makes control over the data, so protection of this data, um, a central key asset of the whole uh puzzle because now a patient sees what data is used really um, for what purpose and can also um, allow certain usage of data and um, disallow certain usage of data. That's a very interesting development. Um, thank you very much for, for the insights. Unluckily, we already have uh, come to the very last question of this podcast episode and uh, it always revolves around the more distant future, I would say. So I would like to ask you to take a look into the crystal ball. So what exciting new applications and devices can we expect in the area of smart healthcare? Where will the journey um, take us? Wow, that's a very uh, broad question and um, I think uh, very challenging to answer because yeah, we all know that predictions, especially if they are about the future, are very um, hard to make. But I'll, I'll try myself. So what we currently see um, in the not too distant future is, of course, this, for me, very interesting area of um, RF, radio frequency, wave-based, um, radar-based sensing. So there's really a lot of interesting um, um, insights that we can generate from these kind of um, non-invasive and touch-free um, 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 data collection systems. So, for example, we are currently doing a study um, at the end of lifetime. So in palliative care with um, radar systems that measure heartbeat information and that measure um, breathing information. And with these um, systems, we get information about yeah, the last phase and the last days and actually hours of life. And this um, is, first of all, a, a data collection study. But with the data, we hope that we can also come up with biomarkers that really tell us um, predictively 
um, when these last days and last hours um, of life are really uh, arriving so that you can actually stop um, palliative care or um, 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 change palliative care and inform the relatives at the right point in time that it's now, yeah, well, time to unfortunately say goodbye um, to your relative. So these are things that I, I think are a little bit of closer on the horizon. Um, a little bit farther away are things that we just do a little bit of research with currently in, um, in my direct uh, vicinity, and that's um, brain-computer interfaces. That's a technology that I'm, I'm really um, fascinated about because currently the world is talking about, yeah, well, um, artificial intelligence systems and uh, uh, chat GPT and in general uh, AI systems that can replace um, human function. I think the machine learning experts like myself and also um, um, much better known international experts like Joshua Bengio and uh, Jeffrey Hinton and uh, other um, very um, well-known people in the area of artificial intelligence, they predict that, well, until the AI is replacing us, um, human intelligences that will take some 40 or 50 years because the systems are just not there yet. But that's, um, I think, a more philosophical discussion. But what um, what could really be interesting if, if we combine um, the technical intelligences and the um, biological intelligences even better by, as I said, brain-computer interfacing. And there's really interesting developments that might in the next 20 or 30 years um, actually lead to um, um, interesting uh, developments in, um, yeah, well, combining the uh, advantages of technical systems and of uh, biological um, intelligences. And then, of course, uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting developments also on restoring um, body functions. So, for example, um, having even better restoration of uh, hearing function, of vision function, um, by the combination, as a set of technical devices um, with uh, the biological intelligence. Now, how the world will look like in 100 to 150 years or even beyond that, I do not dare imagine. Maybe we will be able to upload ourselves into the cloud um, with the appropriate brain-computer interface, but I, I think I'll uh, leave the speculation here um, to the listeners and uh, let you conclude the podcast. Thank you very much for uh, the insights of uh, the today's topics and also the glimpse into the future. Thank you very much, Professor Escofier, for your exciting um, details. This brings us to the end of this uh, episode. Dear listeners, if you want to learn more about us and our world of IoT, visit our website in finian.io. If you are currently listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and maybe leave a little review. Now, it only remains for me to wish you a good time. Take care and goodbye. <laughs>